We are live from the Empire of Lies. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. Welcome, everyone. This is Rod from Philly, the producer of the show. And we have a great show planned for you today. In the first hour, we have Karen Hunt, writer, artist, and martial artist. And she's going to be talking about um, her banning on Twitter and also her move to Costa Rica. And in the, in the second hour, we're going to have the great cartoonist Ted Roll to talk about the leaker and uh, whether this, this alleged leaker is the real leaker and also uh, the pension reform going through in France. And you're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. And we're also very happy to have Ted on because his new show, The Final Countdown, starts on Monday. Is that right, Rod? That's correct. So we love Ted and we love to talk to him. And it's a great way to end the week. Now, I thing I want to talk about first, I think it's very important, is we touched on it yesterday. This new whistleblower who was in the Obama administration as a stenographer—forgive me—as a stenographer—is that right, Rod? That's correctly. So let's talk about this guy. Let's play the clip. This is a guy who worked in the Obama administration and saw Biden corruption firsthand. Let's play the clip. <laughs> to testify to a federal grand jury because he says he has information about then-Vice President Joe Biden's role in his son Hunter's business. But he says the FBI has been ignoring him. Former Obama stenographer Mike McCormick joins us now. Mike, thanks for being here. You say you are a witness to a crime. Walk us through why you say that. Yes. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. Sure. So in, tw- in April... 2014, I was an Air Force Two with Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan. At the time, no one knew that Hunter Biden was already on the board of Burisma Holdings, the natural gas conglomerate from Ukraine. Joe Biden is directing Jake Sullivan in the front of the plane what to say to the press. My job as a stenographer on the plane is to record what the vice president or a senior administration official says to the press. So I'm sitting back there with a tape recorder. Jake Sullivan comes back, and somebody asks him about fracking. His answer is, well, we're bringing a lot of American assistance over for fracking. Burisma was the direct beneficiary of that fracking. And that's what I recorded. And that's in a White House transcript. In In the transcript, you don't know who Jake Sullivan is. It's a senior administration official. I'm the witness that says... Jake Sullivan is the guy who said it, and he should be investigated because at the time, Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma, and Joe Biden is bringing American taxpayer money to enrich that company and himself and his family. Yeah, Mike, let me throw in a few dates here. Hunter joins the Burisma board April 18th, 2014. You have that conversation with Jake Sullivan April 21st, 2014, uh, outlining how the U.S. would help Ukraine's gas industry with Joe Biden's help. Hunter's role not made public till May 12th, 2014. And then in December of that year, Congress approves $50 million to support Ukraine's energy sector. Ashley. 
You know, Mike, my biggest question is, you said the FBI has been ignoring you. It's, it's no secret right now that people don't have a lot of faith in the FBI. Would you tell them and would they say back to you? Well, that's that's a great question, Ashley. Um, I came across this story back in October. I published it in my Substack. My Substack is Midnight in the Laptop of Good and Evil. I didn't hear much about it. In February, I went to the FBI and filed one of their tips on their website. If you do that and you're lying to them, you go to jail. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth, and I'm not going to jail. Joe Biden is a criminal. He was conducting malfeasance in office to enrich his family. Jake Sullivan is a conspirator in that. And there's more uh, there's more Obama officials involved in it, I believe. So you are willing to go under oath to state that you are certain that this was a kickback scheme that Joe Biden was orchestrating, correct? Correct. There's a grand jury right now in in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. They've been seated for three years with a special prosecutor named David Weiss. If David Weiss can't have me in front of his grand jury explaining what I know as a witness, that's a fraudulent grand jury. It's a fraudulent use of the American judicial system to cover for Barack Obama and Joe Biden's crimes in office. You know, with everything you've said, do you think by you testifying, this would change this narrative? Um, and, and I mean, frankly, a lot of us have already, we, we have thought this for a long time. We, we've always said it's not necessarily Hunter Biden, it's Joe Biden's ties to his business dealings. So do you think by you testifying that it would change this story? So if I testify in front of a grand jury, there are two things can happen. Because I have a little bit of experience in grand juries. I used to be a stenographer listening to grand juries. I used to do transcription for the Lewinsky grand juries. I go back that far with stenographers. Um, two things can happen. One, what I say is evidence. So my, evidence, my testimony would be evidence. But I can also point them to other witnesses they can call into. Because a grand jury is an investigative tool. And if I went in there, I would tell them to have Barack Obama called in as a witness because he's part of the conspiracy. He's an ex-president. He has to answer who was in charge of this putting Joe Biden into this role. Did Barack Obama know about it? Because there's there's evidence I've seen and put in my Substack on April 16th. So two days before Hunter joins, Joe Biden is with Hunter in the West Wing. They have a meeting. And then later that day, in the evening, Joe Biden spends a day in the limousine, in the back of Barack Obama's limousine in western Pennsylvania. Mm. Mike, we reached out to the White House for a statement, but did not hear back. Something tells me we have not heard the end of your story. Keep us posted. Mike McCormick, thank you, sir. Thanks, Mike. So there you have it. Now, Rod, I think that that establishes something else that they're not talking about. By the way, I think the mistake the guy's making is focusing on Obama. The guy seems to think Obama's behind this, right? And I've proven that Obama is not the main guy. Biden brought Obama in with one of the top anti-Russian people, Mikhail Korkoski, on Senate Resolution 322 in 2005 and six, right? You've heard me talk about that many times, right, Rod? Yeah, many times. So Biden was the sponsor, and he brought in Obama as the co-sponsor in 2005 to support Khodorkovsky. So 
And we know that Biden's meetings with Ukrainians goes back to the 80s. You can find in the 80s, Senator Joe Biden meeting with these Ukrainians all over the place. So the, you know that book I've talked about, the book by Hunzak, my memoir, where he talks about recruiting Soros. You know that guy, Hunzak? Yeah, yeah. He was in meetings with Obama, forgive me, with Biden in the 80s. You can find Hunzak, that guy, in meetings with Biden. So it's the same players over and over again. But I think the thing that that's exposing, actually, is that the FBI is seriously covering it up. Combine that with something they didn't mention. Combine what they said about the FBI basically burying this guy's story. And then combine with the fact that the FBI had had the laptop for how long? Like 18 months. The FBI had the laptop. And when the story broke in the post about the laptop, the FBI never came forward and said, well, we know this is true because we have the laptop. So we know it's a real story. Did did I miss that? Where the FBI brought forth that evidence that they had already? No, that's that's never happened, Lee. That's never happened. But you know, the one thing I, uh, there's a continuation of this is Jake Sullivan, because he goes in the the Clinton campaign, and he has a a lot to do with the whole Russiagate. And now, and then even before that, now we have, he's in the Obama administration uh, setting up this whole deal, or involved with the deal. Right, and my question is, who who was responsible for making Hillary Clinton, who Obama did not like personally, Secretary of State? Because that's crucial. Putting Clinton into Obama administration as Secretary of State, I don't think that was Obama's choice, because he doesn't like her, and he has reason not to like her. You know, the stuff she pulled on him during the campaign. But do you? What do you think? Am I paranoid, or is Hillary put into place in Obama's administration? What do you think, Rod? Uh, no, that that's for sure, Lee. Um, you know, Alex did an undercover investigation where they went to the uh, that hotel in Chantilly, Virginia, and uh, both Obama and Hillary were there at the same time. So yeah, no, we never get that answer, Lee. Because I do think. Look again. I pointed this out. Clinton friends, Strobe Talbot, the Shearers, Lloyd Shearer, the Clinton friends go go back to 69. They're people who've known Clinton since college. And when you factor those people in, you see that they're all connected to Russia by trying to rip off Russia. Strobe Talbot, uh, he's connected to Russia. But does that make sense? But he's not pro-Putin or, pro, or pro-Russia, in my opinion. But all of his friends back from college have connections to making money in Russia by ripping Russia off after the fall of the Soviet Union. You've seen that, right, Rod? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great, great group of friends, Lee. But it's important to understand that that's the people where this came from. So in other words, putting Hillary in place as Secretary of State was a key, I'd say, the key cabinet appointment in advancing the Russia-Ukraine narrative that they've been doing for years since 
well before Obama. The Magnitsky Act was 2012. And I pointed out the Magnitsky Act is really where, you think I've shown that over the years, the Magnitsky Act is in fact where a lot of stuff starts, Rod? Yeah, we've been talking about that over, um, you know, the last seven years, Lee, and it's it's overwhelming evidence. And and no one will hear it. But let's go to calls, 202-521-1320. We have the one, the only, the great Slayer of Owls. What's our mind, Al Killer? If you want to know who, and I think you know who the who is, that put Hillary Clinton into Secretary of State, I would go back and watch... Alex Jones' documentary, The Obama Deception. In that in that um, documentary that he did, it came out like right after Obama got elected. They show the point where both Hillary and Obama disappear, and they have nothing on their schedules. And they ended up meeting together at the uh, Bilderberg meeting in Chantilly, Virginia. And that was right, right before Hillary concedes to say that she's not going to seek... Um, She's still not going to uh, seek the um, nomination for the Democratic uh, nominee for president. And well, that's where that... let me stop you for one second, because I want to let you get back on track. But I want your opinion on something that's breaking out in the right wing Internet sphere. I'll, I'll put it like that. Have you been watching the Ali victim site and Ali? Alexander, as well as Milo, going after each other. You've been following that at all? No, I have. No, I have not at all. Um, I, if, if we're going to go down that uh, rabbit hole, is that MTG thing in Milo true? It, it connects to that. It connects to Loomer. Rod, one second, Al Killer. Rod, have you been, did you look into this up at all? Rod? Yeah, I, I did, Lee. Yeah, I saw there was a. Uh... A lot of disturbing stuff with Ali, uh, with younger younger men, and, yeah. al- and allegations going back and forth between him and Milo of the same thing. And and it's a fifteen year old kid. I don't know how to put it. Was friends with Ali and wanted a, uh, to get ahead in politics. And Ali said, "I know a way." And he had the kid do stuff and send him photos. And that's creepy, right? Uh, yeah. And probably illegal. Both. And Ali has, I, I'll tell you, I, I prefer, if, if we're, I prefer Milo over uh, Ali any day. I think he's way more entertaining. Ali just gives me the creeps. But actually, the reason I brought both of them up now is because you mentioned Alex. And I'm going to say, I think you feel the same way I do. Alex Jones is not at all in the same category as Ali or Milo. Some people oh, no, who aren't close. on the right. Alex is a serious jur- journalist, and he gets yeah. distracted sometimes, but he's capable of very good work. And Ali has journalistically, I call him the sun right. He's a, a, you know, he's capable of making headlines. So when I saw Ali hanging around Alex on January 6th. I was at the time saying, I don't like that. And I don't like it. Why a reporter called me today, asked me about this Ali and Milo stuff. And I said, I told him what I know, which is a little, but not much. And I said, 
what do you think's behind it? And he thinks it's Ali and Milo got in a feud over Kanye. They wanted yeah, when Kanye was around and look, this pulls in Candace Owens and Loomer and a lot of people and Alex. I'm not saying pulls them in, implicates them in anything. I'm just saying they're involved with that whole Kanye thing. Kanye, I think, the pull of him, obviously, is he's one of the most famous guys and one of the richest in the world. So you get hangers-on. the sugar daddy. Right, yeah. They're they're competing for the sugar daddy, and I think Kanye caught on to it, and that's why he left both of them. Yeah. And I just, you know, people who are on the right all see them as sort of one blob. Does that make sense? I, I mean, they. I, do, I mean, I guess we do the same same to the left, but I think it's yeah truer on the left. I think it is truer, and I think it's more dangerous. But you know, yeah, for sure, these guys. There, there's but the term grifter applies. I think. Yeah, no, definitely. But that that's what I think. That Kanye was their new uh, grift, and they didn't care how bad they. Um, embarrassed or damaged him in the future, you know, because they were just being guest men for him because they, I mean, Milo wanted like a, was asking for like a hundred thousand dollars for this and like another 50,000 for that. So, because I, I, I remember hearing that Milo was in some type of debt, like close to a million dollars and he was looking for a way out of it. Cause he's basically been uh, blacklisted from being in any type of, I even saw him selling like ornaments on uh, some type of uh, infomercial. Yeah, yeah, and and again, I know some of that stuff because I was there at Breitbart, and I really blame Bannon for a lot of this stuff. Bannon created a lot of this mess and has helped promote these people, and Sarnrich, and Pazovic, and it's a mess because Bannon, look, Bannon also is capable of good thought. Bannon is a good speaker, and he understands yep. a lot of the issues, but he gets sucked into all he brought up. And by the way, and one final thing I want to mention before I forget it. This had nothing to do with that. But I noticed a narrative starting about this guy they arrested in Massachusetts, Jack Cassara. And they said yeah. his Discord group, watch out for this. Because you're Orthodox Christian, right, Al Keller? Well, I'm on the process of it, but yeah. Okay, so I'm noticing that the press is starting to make this an Orthodox Christian bad thing. They're saying the guys on this Discord group talked about guns and racist jokes and Orthodox Christianity. So that's tying that. You see what I'm saying? The media is tying Orthodox. You you know, you name. You know, I'll put it like this. If I say you can have cigarettes and alcohol and carrots. I'm throwing in carrots to try to make them sound bad, right? Right, and I—I I, I mean, you—you you notice that with that, that's funny because of the whole Zelensky uh, going after the Orthodox churches. It, it's funny. That's exactly all, what I thought. Yes. Out of all denominations, um, Orthodoxy stays completely, for the most part, out of politics, um, and they—they they want nothing to do with the uh, the the worldliness. You know, you, obviously, we got to live in the world, but it's. It's it's basically give to Caesar what Caesar's uh, give to God what God, what's God, 
you know, you're they. It's more of we're going to be here long after governments and stuff like that. So it, it's funny. But I'm just, just suggesting keep an eye out for that. Al-Killer. Watch for it. Yeah. Watch for the media demonizing Orthodox Christianity and using this case in Massachusetts to do it. So anyway, what did you call about Al-Killer? Thanks for well, putting it with me. Well, I, I originally called in. Um, it was about do we because the leaks are all over the place, right? So some of them are saying that. So we get some information that we've been getting um, where they're saying that the Spetsnaz are decimated, but then at the same time they're saying that uh, it's a seven to one kill ratio uh, for there's for every um, one Russian there's seven dead Ukrainians. So. I don't know how much of this is 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 real, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of stuff um, sprinkled in that I, I wonder if it was like cover that because that came because apparently it's been on the net for or a video a video game site for months, and w- I, I don't know what's real and what is uh, what's not. But what is what is definitely true is uh, the the. The, they're li- the media is lying to us, and the government is lying to us about w- what's going on over there. I I, I couldn't believe when I heard uh, John Kirby talking about um, this information should not be covered in the news. Like, what what is the purpose of the news media if it's not to cover things like this? So I I think you hit on a fundamental problem. The problem with these leaks, and we did, did discuss a little yesterday, is uh. The leaks are leaks of U.S. intelligence, and U.S. intelligence, frankly, sucks. In other words, if you got the actual report handed to you, the milligas, it's full of U.S. intel. But U.S. intel is so bad because a lot of it comes straight from Ukraine with no checking or verification. So you're going to get a mixed bag of stuff. Does that make sense? I don't think it's the case that the intel agencies really knows what's going on. They, it's not like if you read a report from me and I was saying stuff, you, you could say, well, I know what Lee knows. He knows that's not true. I think they don't know it's true. Does that make any sense, Al Killer? Yeah, but it would be really disappointing to think because at least going back to Iraq, there, there was two. There was two um, trains of thought in the CIA where there was people saying, "Hey, the information you're getting, the certain information because you're paying for it, and they're giving you what what you want to hear." And then there was other people that were like, "No, this is the fact. The fact of the matter is, there's no weapons of mass destruction." Uh, Saddam Hussein's, a st- uh, regardless of the fact, you know, we don't like the fact that he's a dictator and maybe brutal, but he's a, uh, a stabilizing force. And they clearly, because that's why so many uh, prominent CIA um, people resigned, like on the spot, even without their pensions, um, was due to Iraq. So I, I think the intelligence is there. I think they they're picking what they want to what they want to take. You maybe you know something. Maybe you're right because I, I saw a guy talking about licking the world in Ireland, and it's it's almost like we're just. We're like we're walking into a uh, a propeller that is spinning, and like we everybody else can see that the propeller's there, and they're like telling us to get away from it. 
don't don't keep walking, and we just keep uh, marching forward into it. It's like we're one and also, away from something major. They're very legalistic arguments. I, I pointed this out before. The problem with lawyers is they are trained at law school to argue both sides of the case, both right? Sides, of so, yep. If you're saying and the best for instance, attorneys are the best prosecutors. Allow me to make a case to you that Bandera was non Nazi. Ready? Let me do it. Go ahead. A legalistic argument. Bandera was not a member of the Nazi party. Being a Nazi, if you're not a member of the party, doesn't mean anything. And we have no membership card in the Nazi party from Bandera. Now, is everything I'm saying factually true? Yes. It is fact. Yep. But it's a, I'm giving an impression he's not a Nazi, but defining in such a way. Do you see what I'm saying? The facts don't matter. I can make the case either way. And this is well, what I, they I, do. This is what our yeah. intel agency people do. I'm saying this is the way they lie and get around facts. Again. I'll go ahead. I'll so, well, I think a lot of it is uh, lying from a, through omission a as well. Um, that, that, that's the big thing is lying through omission. You know, they, they tell you certain points that they want, certain points that whether true or not, you're, they may like you. I mean, another factual um, thing would, yes, Russia did invade Ukraine. But if you don't know what led up to it, you you know what I'm saying? So that is, that's how they get ignorant people that, you know, in two seconds can look up where this whole thing started. And of course, uh, we're out of time, but great call as usual. And of course, uh, continuing my legal criticism, it's built into the legal system that you can omit. You can only admit evidence. Does that make sense, Al Killer? Our legal system is set up for omission. Oh, definitely. But I get I get it from a uh, from a legal standpoint in a uh, in a courtroom. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's ethical, uh, to say the least, to be doing it to the to the public that you're supposed to be serving. But uh, if you go into law school, you think they. Show you a lot about ethics. Do you think they? You have to pass no, a test on ethics, right? That, no, that's, but I, I don't that's think. My point. Yeah, I don't think CIA lawyers like are. I don't think they they should be pretending like they're practicing law. I, I get that how, why they do it and how they do it. I I just don't think. Then we don't need any lawyers in the CIA. Yeah, no, I would say that's good, but we got to go out of color. Great call as usual. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, the great writer Karen Hunt is with us on the backstory. We're back on the backstory, and we're on the radio in Washington, D.C., on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now, great friend of the show, writer Karen Hunt. Hey, Karen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Lee? I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, Karen. But first, I want to find out what happened to you and others on, on Twitter. 
because Elon Musk has got a feud going with Substack. And <laughs> this gets into eventually the issue of Matt Taibbi. I'm not ready to discuss that yet because I'm not really following closely. But am I right that Elon's got a, a feud with Substack? Yeah, it's hard to keep up with uh, Elon's feuds, <laughs> but um, this one affected me directly. So, as a writer on Substack, and I, you know, I look at Substack as pretty much the last bastion of free speech for writers like myself. So, it was a really quite um, worrisome when the day came that I, you know, tried to post one of my ar uh, articles or essays from Substack onto Twitter, and it, and it it wouldn't go. I mean, it was refused. And of course, the first thing is, why is this happening to me? And then realize that it was happening also to everybody else. So, uh, and nobody, at least that I knew, I guess people like Matt Taibbi might have known better, but um, I didn't realize the reason why this was, except that I, I did already know that, you know, he had some problems with Substack as a sort of a rival, but I guess uh, Substack had started was starting this thing called Notes, which I was then invited to, uh, you know, participate in as a beta kind of a thing before it actually was launched. But that hadn't happened yet. So I guess since this thing was going to be launched, which is kind of a rival to Twitter, uh, Elon Musk got angry and he just he had a tantrum and blocked all of us basically. So, so that's and, what and happened. Could you explain more what this notes is? Because I, I've, from what I've seen, it's not a direct competitor for Twitter. Am I right I, about that? It, it doesn't. I don't think. Yeah, I think that yeah. I don't know that anything's a direct competitor to Twitter, and I don't even know that that's ultimately the reason why Elon Musk did what he did, but it's a kind of maybe an excuse for him to, uh, you know, throw around his power or whatever. I've written quite a bit about Elon Musk. I, it's a kind of a fascinating topic for me. So I've written a, a number of um, articles and essays about him leading up to this point. But, um, and, and interestingly, okay, at the same time, and I'll get into that, what notes is, but I just want to mention that at the same time, uh, Elon Musk has launched now or changed the name or done some legal paperwork to turn Twitter into his ultimate goal, which is this app, the everything app X. All right. So all of this was happening at, at the same time. And I've written quite a bit about that, which he wants to sort of model it on China's WeChat. He wants to make it everything, just sort of suck everybody into this uh, just so that they do everything on this app. He was saying that he wants to make it like the biggest uh, um, success uh, story in the history of of all all social media. Basically, that that's what he wants to do with his X app. So then, so notes is just basically this thing where whereby uh, the you know all of us that are involved with Substack we can invite uh, our, our readers, and it's a place where we can engage more. It, it really is quite similar to. Twitter, and I actually quite like it. It's very easy to navigate and all of that. So all of the writers on Substack can now, you know, have, have more of a sort of interact with one another, basically, and 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 their uh, followers or their subscribers can sort of interact as well in a place where you know in a free on a free speech platform, or where really there's 
so far, no monitoring. And it's interesting because at least so far, the algorithms haven't put us all in little boxes. So I I was saying, so I did post something on there and it was like for the first time in a very long time, somebody called me a Karen, which that is my name, but you know, a Karen, somebody from the other side blasted me for what I'd written. And we've been putting these algorithms for so long now on, on or, or in these boxes on Twitter and everywhere else. It, you don't get that type of interaction anymore. It's just basically everybody sort of, you know, regurgitating the same information. So that was kind of interesting that that happened. Well, it's funny you mention that because I got a question about that. I used to do improv in L.A. for a long time. And one of the guys I did improv with was named Forrest. And then the film Forrest Gump came out. And he said, that used to be a good name. I used to like my name. (laughs) So let me ask you, how did the COVID, as a Karen, how did the COVID-19 epidemic affect you personally, pandemic or whatever? All that Karen foolishness. Did that change being a Karen? Yeah, it was. I, I am. You know, neither of my parents are are alive any longer. But they, I, I can't even imagine what their reaction would be. Actually, I was named after um, one of Job's daughters in the Bible, Karen Hapik, K E R E N. But you know, it's useless for me to say that to people. I'm not really Karen. I'm like, you know, I'm named after this obscure person in the Bible. But, um, but yeah, I was just, it, it, I was, it was really interesting because it, this, these whole stereotypes that have arisen, I became one of those. I could not get, get past my name. And of course I was, you know, saying all these types of things that just fed into me being called a Karen. I think one, like one of the really best ones that I was called or the worst ones was um, um, pasty-faced, plague-ridden Karen. That was one of the really good ones that I was called by some liberal writer that I was daring to, you know, say the types of things that I was saying. So, and then it was interesting that people on the right started also using that to uh, to as a negative connotation towards people that they didn't like, and it's hard for me to raise the issue. But I don't, I don't because it's it's personal to me. But I see it as just really another way that people became desensitized to these things. It seems so innocuous. It's just a name, you know, the name Karen. But it really, it just fed into that whole idea that we could build these stereotypes, and there was, and once you were in it there was no way that you could escape out of it. So it was, in, yeah, it was pretty interesting having that name. Yeah, it is interesting. And uh, not, uh, back to the Substack thing, with Twitter and Substack, it seems to me the average Twitter user, what skill sets do you need to be on Twitter? To be a Twitter user, you need to be able to type things and post pictures, right? Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. skill set you need. But it seems to me the average Substack person who contributors have a skill. They can write whole sentences and often paragraphs even and say coherent things. That's why you have Cy Hirsch and Matt Taibbi Mm -hmm. and people like yourself over. So Substack seems to me to be a smaller demographic. Am I right? Yeah, it's absolutely a smaller demographic. I mean, it it takes... As I say, it takes a lot of work, time, thoughtful, 
energy to create a piece, well, on Substack. Well, I mean, I guess anybody could create, can create anything that they want on Substack. But to be a writer who gets some sort of recognition on Substack, you have to, you know, you have to say something of substance and you have to be able to back up what you're saying. So, for you know, I do a lot of research when I write things on Substack. And for myself personally, I don't just, I, there are people who just kind of list things and graphs and stuff like that. They, they do that on Substack. But for myself, I try to create actual stories, you know, to illustrate what I'm talking about on Substack. And I, and I like it a lot. So I think the notes thing is just, it's, it's not, it's not ever going to take the place of that. It's just a place for people to uh, interact and engage. And maybe I think that what they're trying to do is, uh, is is uh, keep the writers there and give the writers more uh, more visibility, basically more chances to promote themselves uh, and things like that. But I think, uh, like for me, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that notes. It, it just it's too time consuming to all of that. And I think there's other writers that will find that as well. But I, I would use it just to basically post my my writing so that people who read other writers that might not otherwise find me would have an opportunity to find me. And I think that's basically what it, what, uh, what the value of it is that, that I can see. And that's why I don't think that they're actually competitors because there are vast numbers of people on Twitter who have no interest in politics at all. They simply tweet about what they're seeing on TV or out the window or what you know what I'm talking about, Karen, right? Lots yeah, of people absolutely. on Twitter don't write, and they care about things that I don't care about. But those people is our big, like, you know, watching TV community on Substack. I, you know, I don't know because again, I'm in a subset of I, I'm in a part of of a Substack where, again, we talk about certain types of things. It's, it's, it is, you know, political, it's, um, cultural, it's current events, it's very in-depth, um, thinking, I would say, but there are people on Substack who write about coffee or write about travel or write, you know, their personal experiences, or I wrote a poem today. There are quite a lot of people like that as well. So, um, so, you know, anybody can write on Substack it's, it, and that's the thing about Substack. It's, it's, it, I don't think it, there's any, but blocking anything. It really is a, a free place where you can, uh, you know, express, uh, freely what you, what you, what you believe or anything, basically, I don't know anything, but pretty much anything that you want to. So there are, I'm sure there are frivolous writers on there, but it's not the same as being on Twitter because Twitter, you just write these short little things and it takes you two seconds. Anybody writing on Substack has to write something like a few, like you say, at least a couple paragraphs. Now have you been following the Matt Tybee stuff at all, Karen. Yeah, I've, I, I've been following it and I thought it was interesting that I just felt like he, you know, these writers that did the whole, and, and I can't get, that's a whole huge topic, the Twitter files. I, I mean, all of these things that come up, do they ever cha change anything? They make this huge, big splash among a certain audience. And everybody thinks this is the, the, the next biggest deal that's ever happened, like the Twitter files. And then it just, 
fades away. But there are people, individuals who gain a lot out of that. You know, they gain a bigger audience. They gain, I don't know, some more prestige within a certain group. And it was interesting that at the same time as that whole thing happened with Elon Musk, that Matt Taibbi went on, oh, who's on the, uh, what's the guy's name? He went on a show on CNN or something and he, and he was so, so he made him, it was brave of him to do that, but he made himself very visible on the other side, the side that now is the, you know, called, it would be the enemy of conservatives. And so he sort of opened himself up to uh, the beast attacking him, which they did. And so it was interesting because on that side, it, what it did, what it did was, and, and I think what people don't realize who are in this bubble of this conservative world, you know, where they think that they're winning some kind of a battle on Twitter, which th which they are not. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, they thought that he did the greatest job ever. But what happened was it just destroyed the credibility of um, uh, because because he was asked, you know, really pointed true questions about Elon Musk about things that Elon Musk ha had done. And he, and he came back kind of just saying, well, you know, I like Elon Musk, you know, he defended Elon Musk. And then right after he did this, he did, he gave that de defense of Elon Musk to basically the whole world, not just a little Twitter, uh, you know, followers. Um, then Elon Musk just stabbed him in the back, <laughs> you know, I mean, just turned on him and, 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 every, you know, he was sort of became the representation. It must've been quite, horrible for him in that moment. And then he just said, I'm going on. Well, and he did, he went on vacation with his, with his family and just, I can't even imagine how, how horrible he must've felt at that moment. But, you know, he's carried on, but it kind of, it, all of that just kind of lended, um, more, uh, fuel. And I feel like Elon Musk does that in sort of a very roundabout sort of a way. Like he just, He'll do anything to dis to disrupt or destroy things because I don't know. Maybe he just thinks it's funny. I really don't know his mentality, and then he'll just turn around and change his mind. And it's sort of like some sort of a, um, you know, a despot or, or somebody that just feels like they can do that. He he doesn't really care who he destroys in the process, but people still think and he's just. Then they defend him and think he's the most wonderful free. And I do not believe he's a free speech advocate. At all, no. Well, I, I would say it's more a little. Uh, my views, it's a little more complex than that. I think he is, but like Peter Thiel, I have serious concerns, and I, they're both old school tech guys in a sense, who were around at the beginning of the internet. PayPal is an early internet infrastructure thing, and uh, Thiel and Musk. Both have a quasi-libertarian view that a lot of tech people had at the beginning of the internet. Does that make any sense, Karen? Yeah, I agree. I, I think he has that sort of, and, and he's kind of he is the outlier. You know, he's going to say, "I do respect that he, um, you know, he always is going to say what he thinks. He's not going to, uh, he's not going to bow to pressure or anything like that." But then he is like you know, the second, now only the second richest man person in the world. So he really doesn't have to, but, um, but the whole thing with Twitter is that 
you know, if you look into it, like I've written quite a few pieces about how, you know, data and how this is like feeding the, feeding um, the vast machine, which I call it, which I like to call it the vast machine from the traveler, um, Jonathan Twelve Hawks book, which is a book that I really like. So I just like to call it the vast machine. And, you know, we are basically feeding this machine, this vast machine, this vast machine is learning or whatever, you know, there's some controversy about that, but learning from us, taking our ideas, taking our, our, our everything from us. And it's been said uh, there, um, there's, I have a few, uh, Arthur Rennick, his name is Rennick, who said um, that Twitter is like the, every possible thought that, that we could have right. has been encapsulated into Twitter and that this is all, so he's taking all of this data and feeding, you know, for Neuralink and all of this. So he talks about free speech. Yes. But, but it's basically about that, about really, yeah, he wants everybody to speak freely, but his ultimate goal is not free speech. It's to capture all of that data and then feed it to this vast machine so that he can win this, you know, win the, the great prize of being number one. And so uh, I think you're familiar with Palantir, right? Yes, it, that's yes, exactly. And Palantir is another example of, uh, see, I think what happens, being, speaking as a nerd myself, when you are young, a teenager, and you get into computers, it's because they're fun. Okay, computers and video games are fun. And you start, start exploring them. And then you find you actually can make money doing stuff. I found that out very early on by going to work for a company that was making software, new tech. I've talked about them before. And uh, I think those guys discovered the fun turned into huge money, billions of dollars. And suddenly, like anyone with billions of dollars, they get compromised. Right? Oh, absolutely. People, absolutely. Does that make sense? Karen? Yeah, I think that that is absolutely true that the more uh, and and the, the the more power that a person gets, it's a weird kind of a maybe it's a law of the universe, I don't know. Uh, the more that they must compromise their integrity or their ethics or whatever so that they can get on to the next level and they, you know, can justify that to themselves in all different kinds of ways. It's kind of interesting. I wrote a piece uh, called Soulbound on Vitalik Buterin he started Ethereum, Ethereum, and which is number two underneath Bitcoin, and um, and and he loved this game. Um, he loved playing uh, uh, computer games. Uh, this game, Soulbound, and he had a huge. He he says this in his like bio or whatever that he had this huge moment as a young teenager, where he got beat and it wasn't fair. And it was that became like the driving force for him that he was going to create the game or whatever that was his vision. And I think all these guys, they have their vision. It's like these guys that were, you know, the nerdy, yeah, the nerdy guys in the basement. And now they have this opportunity to suddenly, you know, come out into the real world and make all those guys that, 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 that tormented them live in their game. 
You know, they're going to turn the tables and make everybody else live in their game. And and I think, you know, psychologically, that's just kind of really interesting to me. So that's basically what, what he did. And that was his kind of like a driving force, I guess, for him in his life. And he actually now has these, he wants everybody to have these like token these soul bound tokens where you're you know part of a like this group and you're kind of bound to this group and everybody and so everybody can judge one another within the group and you can sort of progress within the group and get these tokens and that that type of a thing so it, yeah it's interesting how these things progress and i and they probably really do believe that they're doing good for humanity by by doing this they they can't really and- see beyond their own game basically by the way, not all listeners are fishing for ranches. I'm just going to mention them. <laughs> well, I'm but, pretty nerdy you know, myself, I think. So. <laughs> but if Elon and plus I'm looked, a Karen, <laughs> if that double whammy. So if Elon had hadn't become the Elon Musk tech billionaire guy, and he was managing a Best Buy in you know Emeryville or whatever. Because you can imagine if he did not hit, that's what Elon would be doing, right? Managing Best Buy. I don't know. He'd probably get fired really quickly because he, you know, he would never be able to fit into the system. You know, somehow he found a way. I mean, these guys are not. I don't think he'd ever be able to fit in fit into the system. Um, and I understand that because the last thing I ever want to do is fit into, I mean, I'd probably get fired. I'd get fired in two seconds if I was trying to manage it, you know, because it just, you know, I don't think it would work very well. So I get that. (laughs) Yeah. I haven't had a job. I've not been fired by. (laughs) Yeah. I got fired a lot when I was younger. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, let me ask you about Matt Taibbi as a journalist. It's a broad question, because if someone asked me, is Matt Taibbi a good journalist? I would say it depends. And it's the same answer I'd give to Carl Bernstein. Carl Bernstein, ignore Watergate, because that's controversial. Ignore it. Carl Bernstein did an article for Rolling Stone on the CIA. Remember that? Did you ever read that article? Yeah, it's a vague in my mind, though. So I'm, you're, you're tell me it's more. A, Remind me. It's a very good article. That article by Carl Bernstein shows that Carl Bernstein can do good journalism. And I think Matt Taibbi, like that, has shown that he can do good journalism. But I do not think that just because it has mass byline on it, it's good journalism. I've seen him do sloppy and lazy stuff. That appeals to the left at times. But that being said, he's capable of doing very good work. So I, what do you think? Yeah, I think that for, and for a lot of these people like him and Barry Weiss and, uh, I don't know, Glenn Greenwald. And I mean, I admire and, and, and really respect these journalists because I think that probably, you know, when he's right, was writing for Rolling Stone, you know, again, you compromise yourself. And you're writing things. You can. It's easy to lose your way, and you know, write things that you you know you're supposed to write, or yeah, maybe just because you're writing. So I don't know what writing so much. You you're doing sloppy, or you don't care anymore. Or you're not inspired. And I think for some of these people, when they took that leap and they said, "Okay, that's it. You know, I'm going to speak out. I'm going to change." I think it. I definitely took you know, some courage and, but it's not, it's, it's done them well. I mean, they did it at a time 
when they were when there was enough of a of a uh, of a safety net to catch them. You know, when I was canceled, I was canceled back in 2006 for you know in for what for um, starting this nonprofit and and just fighting against this, the um, elite basically at that time. But there was no safety net back then. There was there was no nobody I could go to and say, hey, you know, tell my story or 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 stand by me or help. There was just nothing. I didn't even know what it what it really even meant. I couldn't define it as. You know, there was no woke. There was no, you know, there weren't all of these words back then to help us define what was happening. So I think for these these journalists, when they came out, so to speak, there was they knew there was a place that they could go. Yes, they were taking a chance, but there was a place they could go, and that also inspired me because I felt like, wow, there's finally there's these other voices because uh, I had no voice because I'd been, you know, canceled such a long time ago. I couldn't get in anywhere. And so I can sort, you know, th- th- this has opened doors for a lot of people. to. And, and for the first time when I went on Substack, I felt like I could really say what I wanted to say freely. And so I really, you know, look to these journalists, maybe not always, I don't always agree with them. Definitely don't always agree with Barry Weiss. I don't always agree with what they're saying. And I think sometimes they're they're really still blocked in their thinking, but I still, you know, respect them. Seymour Hirsch, of course, he's in another category, I think, you know? No, yeah, I agree. But I think that, that they give real legitimacy to the platform. And I, I do think that. And uh, having been the lead investigative reporter at Breitbart.news, Breitbart.com, that gets you no respect whatsoever. You know, and no. they don't even look at my work. They look at the byline. They said, those are Breitbart, so you must suck. And they don't criticize my work. It's almost the opposite of what people worked at the Times, let's say, where they give them, oh, oh, that must mean he's good. Does it make sense, Karen? Yeah, this is such a frustrating thing. And I remember when I was first starting to investigate all of this that was going on with COVID, I really had never, I even, I thought at that time, you know, Fox News, I'm never going to, that's just bad. Uh, all right. And then all of these other places were rising up, you know, the, these other news stations. And I started listening to them and I started realizing that there were other perspectives and there's, but most people aren't going to do that. They just are going to believe if it says, as you say, Time, the times, um, they're 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 still going to believe that 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 has some some validity, and they're not looking at the actual work. And and I even when I write, like I would I'd be hesitant to even though I'm speaking to I know a certain audience, I'm trying to relate to everyone. So I will I look at all the news when I'm writing something. I will you know I, I would be hard I would be hesitant to quote something from Breitbart News because I know if there there might be somebody who might read my work who might listen, and if I put that in there, they're going to just shut it off. And that's unfortunate, but that's reality. No, I agree. Roger Stone, who I'm friendly with off the air, when he was in the middle of his mess, we asked him to be on the show. And he said, it's not to my advantage to appear on Sputnik. And my response was just, of course, Roger, I get it. Because I do get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm such a rebel and I don't have anything to lose. I will like, I feel like 
even people, when I went back on Twitter, there were so many people that said to me, that's a cesspool. Why would you ever go there? And, you know, to me, it's like, I, I want my voice to be heard. You know, I would, I, I and, but he doesn't, yeah. you know, I, he has to be careful of his reputation at a certain level. So I get that totally. But that's why some of yeah. us never reach that level. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Thank you for being on the show. Let's my take a pleasure. short break. And when we come back, there's more on the backstory. back. Uh, seems like we're having a little technical difficulties with Lee. Uh, this is Rod from Philly, the producer of the show, and we have a great second hour planned for you. Our second guest is Ted Raw, and Ted Raw is going to be talking about the Pentagon leaker and whether he believes, or from what he's read, that this is the, the real leaker, or if this is some type of other psyop, or who knows as of, as of now. But don't forget to subscribe to our Rumble channel, The Backstory, and check us out at sputtingnews.com. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Okay, right. So I got a couple of clips I want to get to, both by Ron Paul. I thought these were very good. You know, it's Ron Paul, so hard to go wrong. But the first one I want to play is uh, the, uh, the one that says Ron Paul government. Not the JFK one. Okay, Zach? You see the one? The government? Okay, let's hit it. I'm Ron Paul. Here you go. I bet you there are a lot of libertarians at the beginning of this. I was like, well, these companies are private. They can do what they want. We're not going to close them down. And But there is an answer for that. They're not private. And, and early on, I said, they're nothing but the arm of the government. And, uh, and, and, and that's a big difference. And then all of a sudden, we got the proof of that. But that came out now. Not many people are talking about it. But the FBI and the CIA, they work with these, uh, these, uh, these companies like uh, all the so so social welfare so, uh, social companies. Uh, well, that that is a that is a big deal, and that could be stopped. That's that should uh, <laughs> it should be uh, you know a, a violent act to yeah. do that, especially when the government's there. That, that's why we should have a lot less government. <laughs> I bet. You no, I agree completely, and that's why I I'm on the right. I view the right left split as essentially. Do you want more government or less? And uh, what role should the government play? Rod, do you see the left right thing that what, same way? Yeah, I, tot I totally uh, agree with you on that, Lee. And Ron Paul's right on point with his uh, his take. And uh, as we see the uh, the radical left, the extreme left, whatever you want to call it. They use the government as a uh, as a hammer, and everyone who's in their way is a nail. So that's the way they're, you know, whether you want to say gun control, now they're trying to restrict our free speech online, and pretty much have total surveillance uh, through law, through law. Um, I, I I see it the same way. No, I've talked about this before. I I uh, made a choice 
when I was covering Russiagate back in 2017, I started to look at the whole story, and I suddenly said, I need to look into JFK. And I don't know exactly why I thought that. It was an almost intuitive sense. I was coming across stuff, and I realized, does this make any sense at all, Rod, that if I wanted to understand what the deeper story going on, I had to look in JFK. And that led me to learning a lot about the CIA, who, of course, didn't explain the CIA's behind Russiagate, right? So that instinct, I think, was right. But I remember very specifically, I had it. I said, I immediately grabbed a bunch of books on JFK and started talking about it on the show. I haven't even guessed about it. But does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, we've been talking about it uh, for the past couple of weeks, Lee, and I've been doing the same. Uh, there's uh, a couple of research and authors who uh, that were involved with the uh, JFK JFK Revisited with Oliver Stone, and uh, I've been following them. And there's so, there's just so much. It's uh, you could do maybe two college courses on the on the everyone involved with the JFK assassination. And uh, if we look at people like David Shaw, uh, or Clay Shaw, I'm sorry, not David Clay Shaw, and uh, oh, how oh, he was yeah. connected to the the uh, French fascists and how they were openly uh, pretty much fascist. They were just saying, you know, we were, they were in favor of fascism. And, uh, you know, that's, not, that's almost never talked about. You know, and there's also a Ukrainian connection, by the way, uh, potentially. So a friend of mine's a real JFK scholar, and he's serious. And uh, you talk to those guys sometimes. Tyler Nixon is also, uh, you know, and Roger Stone, these guys are serious. I've read, you know, like five, maybe eight books on JFK. But these are guys who've read dozens, right? And uh, I'm not at the bottom of the JFK thing yet. But time and time again, it comes up that the CIA is behind everything bad the U.S. has become. And I'll say that bluntly. The CIA is behind everything bad the U.S. has become. Do you agree, Rod? Yeah, of course, Lee. Um, it's undeniable. And, you know, it's just weird now. Maybe we're seeing a spy versus spy type thing within possibly CIA with these leaked documents. Because I don't, personally, me, just based off everything that's going on, I, I, I'm not sure if this uh, gentleman, Teixeira, was re really, got, you know, where, where did he get them from? You know, he, he was in charge of these documents. <laughs> he, they were easily, he could easily access them. I mean, it just, it's not adding up to me. Well, I'll tell you, I thought about this last night. I have a policy on this story, okay? And I'm going to stay up front so everyone knows. My policy is I'm not going to rule anything out. I'm at a point now, especially after the pand pandemic, where I don't want to say, if my first instinct would be, no, 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 you haven't proven that. Does that make sense? Where before I might have said, okay, have a higher standard of proof, and then I'll believe it. Now I'm going to say, I'm not going to rule anything out. I might not believe it, but I'm not going to doubt it. Because I've been lied to, you know, too many times. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, and that's just how the that's just how I'm uh, I'm looking at it now. It's it's a, it's a time thing, and uh, unfortunately, by the time we really find out what's going on, the news cycle's moved on, 
or it's going to move on. But just, you know, with you have the New York Times helping find this individual with the FBI. And it's just like, it's just, it's just so much involved in it. That just, it just, it's to me, it's just smell a little funky. Yeah. And, and it's very complex. And so, you know, mathematicians discuss, you know, talk about axioms or philosophers and, uh, or you talk about first principles. What can you say is true for sure? Right. And that's a question I ask myself about stories all the time. Here's what I know for sure. For sure, the CIA was funding operations against Russia using Ukraine as a, a you know, cudgel, basically, since World War II. I've seen the records. I've read reports about that time and time again. First person, I've read books. Everything I know. I know that, okay? Does that sound good, Rod? Is it a good, good axiom that I know the U.S. has been pushing an anti-Russian narrative using Ukraine, right? Yeah, we, we, we know that for sure, yeah. So since I know that as a first principle, then I can go, what else do I know? And I go through all the stuff I know in Ukraine. And then whenever I hear the reporting about these leaks, I can't listen to a report on just everyone's mainstream media is reporting about the leaks, CNN and NPR, right? And as soon as they come to the leaks, they might be giving Russia information. And I'm like, no, no, no. I can't get through a report about these leaks without them saying some BS about Russia. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And, uh, you know, like Al Killer said, you know, with John Kirby coming out there and uh, saying we should, nobody should be looking at these documents, it, it just adds to the confusion of, of, you know, what the hell's going on. And the only thing I know is I, I try to watch what narrative they're pushing. And that's why you mentioned the Orthodox thing earlier. But let's go to calls 202-521-1320. Our great friend Millie from Texas. Millie, what's on your mind? Hi, guys. I just wanted to say thank you for being on the air and allowing us to call in with citizen concerns, American American citizens, because we're at the point now where, you know, as you were mentioning earlier with Roger Stone, people being afraid to speak out of the truth depending on what Mike is paying attention. So, you know, I, I understand a lot of paranoia with the Russiagate stuff, but I would encourage any American citizen to get on your show and really discuss the things that they are aware of because we're reaching the point where we don't have a voice. The radio stations here and the media here, the journalists here will not take that story and make it public anymore because of this disinformation campaign. So we're very limited on the resources that we can just to have a mic out there and talk to people and, and say what's really going on. And I see the way that, yes, CIA or Deep State or whatever you want to say has weaponized the government at this point. But when American citizens are reaching out and they are discussing some of the crimes that they have personally seen and they have gone on the record as American citizens, you look at somebody like Andrei Teloshenko and think, oh, my gosh, he's a Ukrainian. We can take care of this one way or another. Right. And then they look at it from the deep state in and say, we're going to kick this out. We're going to call this guy Russian. He can't come to the state. We're going to take his money. There is nothing left. Well, guess what? We're next. And I can definitely tell you that with Andre, 
they can go after him because he's not an American citizen. But what happens to the American citizen that brought him to Congress? The, the American citizen that, that allowed him to bring his story to their congressional Senate and Congress and oversight because they knew that there was investigations and that that person's story was extremely valuable to prevent war. That, that's right. M- Millie, stay on. Listen to clip with me, because I brought JFK stuff earlier for a reason. Ron Paul talks about it in this clip. Zach, hit There's been a coup. We don't have any resemblance to a government that believes in a republic. We don't have honest money. We don't have integrity. We don't even have people in Washington that even pretends, you know, that you're supposed to tell the truth. You know, remember just recently there was a congressperson that won, and he he won by putting on his resume just a bunch of lies. And and, and the other ones got hysterical. The other congressman is telling lies like this. And I got to thinking, well, how many of these people that were complaining about this guy telling lies, how many of them lied when they raised their hand up and swore to uphold the Constitution? Now, that's a lie that really has consequences. Actually, you could probably uh, make fun and make a little joke because his jokes weren't, everybody knew he was fibbing, but uh, the real lies are, are being told, and, and that is our big problem. But I do believe there has been a coup, and it's been taken over, and if I want to, if I can, I want to just put the date in my mind, and you, anybody could pick probably any date in the last hundred years, but I have picked, uh, I have picked November 22nd, 1963. What happened on that day? That was the day Kennedy was murdered by our government. Wow. You know, by the CIA. And that was great. So, to hear Ron Paul say that really did my heart good. What did you think, Millie? I think that it's not just valid, but he's he's barely getting the tip of this iceberg, meaning, you know, yeah, you can kind of laugh about, you know, some of these guys lying into Congress, but you've got to remember how many people those people, you know, that one person represents, and if they're going to lie and not represent the people that they have been elected to represent, you've got that entire community that's ignored on all kinds of things like fentanyl and drug addiction and homelessness and you know, you name it, we could we could go through it, but they, they don't listen to their own constituents and improve America the way that it could be in a very short amount of time because they're too busy with the game of lying. And I, I think that's very dangerous. There you go. Uh, seems like seems like Lee might be uh, connecting. Uh, thanks, Millie, for that. You know, and uh, def- definitely agree with you. And, you know, thank you for calling in and setting it straight that, you know, that this is one of the few places where you can... Uh, air out your grievances uh, it's 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 strange you know uh living in a country where we talk about f- freedom of speech and uh there's not too, too many places you can look so uh th- thanks for calling in and uh go ahead go ahead millie i i also think when you're talking about some of these deep state um ai and technology advancements right now and the censorship program that you hear about it can be as simple as control over a phone call so if I wanted to reach your office or, you know, have a voice on that's prevented, you know, there's something to say about who's controlling that censorship for the phone call. And there's many different ways that that can happen, um, you know, not getting into conspiracy, but it's very easy to control some of the communications that are that are in place right now. 
and we're barely scratching the surface on the censorship program that the government already has on us. No, and, and I, I think, Melanie, I'm back on. Sorry about that. Um, the the other thing that's going on now is it's overwhelming psychologically. If you if you try to keep up with all this stuff, it becomes psychologically overwhelming, and that's why I'm seeing. I think you're seeing some of the mass shootings and the bizarre behavior of people. What do you think, Melanie? Again, this might be something that we could solve with local communities if we had a decent discussion about some of the mental illness in our community. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, it's on a grander scale, and you put a stamp on it, and you can get a, a politician that makes a lot of money off of a call. But I think that some of these kids carrying guns that are doped up on a lot of pharmaceutical medications might be a, a decent discussion with the community of like what this, this kid's background was and if they reached out for help even in their middle school or you know educational facilities. But the the thing they want to put them on is vaccines and also hormone blockers. But that's the, the, their focus. But great call, Millie. Fantastic call. Thanks so much. Two two five two one thirteen twenty. Let's go to Louisiana and Tarif. What's on your mind? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free June and signs. I have, I have two comments. Wow, I'm getting a feedback in my phone. Okay, here I go. Um, the first comment is dealing with the um JFK when he started running for con- I mean, excuse me, running for president. He can release files on the Central and South American leaders that was taken um assassinated and also the government. That was cooled. So if he do that, he gonna win more support among not just the Mexican population, but the uh, Latino population as a whole. And he do the same thing with the other immigrants. I won't say immigrant, but the uh, people that came from Africa and became citizens. He do it with them and everybody else, and he he should be able to pick up support, support among them. Um, my second comment to. Two terrible things. It seems like the um, New York Times, the Washington Post is working with the feds to out whistleblowers. All right. And my, my, and also along with that, with the Restriction Act they're trying to pass, because of that leak, it seemed to me as like um, that guy's being used a, as a, as a pastor. And they're trying to gain more and more restrictions on the Internet and put spies on the internet to spy on us, taking our um, rights away from us. It was especially got all this stuff going on with um, people being uh, that's in poverty, eviction, high inflation, people not getting paid enough on these jobs. And um, in the 2024 is coming up with the elections. It seems like the um, corrupt bureaucrats is trying to get main to try to get more control. So I think, in my opinion, we might have to start depending on Central and South American media, media from over over the world now, to get the truth. So we, we might have to start getting VPNs to, to get the truth. I think it, people need because to Because of the way do. things going on right now with the Washington Times and, I mean, the well, Washington Post and the New York Times is not I good. Have to move on for Time reasons, but great culture and great topic. I think what people need to do is develop critical thinking skills. Then any news you get will not fool you. 
develop thinking skills, learn to separate truth from fiction in the news. It's possible. So I, we had to move on because I got to play this long clip. This is Tucker talking about, now, Rod, if I give you two choices, whistleblower or leaker, the guy was arrested, would you say whistleblower or leaker? How would you describe that guy? Well, if everything they say is true, I'd say he's a, to me, I say he's a whistleblower because he's trying to uh, give information to the people that would help them and, you know, that they're being lied about too. Right. And he's not doing it, you know, for money. There's no even accusation that he's been paid off by the government of Poland or whoever. To, right? Exactly. They are just, just circulating it among this group. And I didn't, hear, I didn't see anything about money. I know they keep, you know, on the news, they keep calling him a, a gun lover. So, you know, he's evil because he likes guns. Now, also, they, I said this before. I, I'm really shallow, Rod. I, I'm a, you know, shallow person. I admit it. But they were talking about the Discord server. Those guys told racist jokes. So I'm so bad. I want to hear a joke. I want to hear what the jokes are. Does that make sense? Actually, for news purposes, want to hear the joke because I want to see if I'd go. That's not really racist, because I might. No, no, I get you, Lee. And you know, again, when I keep hearing them repeating things like that, he's a gun lover, and they were doing racist jokes. Well, that's you know, it's the same as hate crime. It's whatever you say it is. So it might not even be racist. That's right, and and I'm just saying, you know, not every joke that mentions race is a racist joke. And some jokes are racist-ish, but they're kind of stupid. I told one on a show, for instance, what do you call a fat Chinese person? A chunk. Now, that's a stupid joke, but is it racist? It's a play on words. I think the joke part about that, it's it's a word play. Does it make sense, Rod? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, you're going to have a, a protest of, of Asian or or Chinese people. I think you said or Asian people at at front of the station. So yeah, it, it's just what? stupid. Whatever whatever they say is racist. Supposedly now has to be racist. That's right, and that's why I want to hear it. So anyone who has a racist joke, they were telling, not random ones. I stop that. Don't do that. But the ones on the Discord server, I would like to see those. To know what they're talking about, because maybe they're, they're lying about it. So, uh, I want to play this clip. This is Tucker talking about the leaker or whistleblower, depending on your point of view. Hit it. Perfectly aware of this, they're panicked about it, but they have lied about this fact to the public. Just two weeks ago, for example, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin told the U.S. Senate that Russian military power is, quote, waning. In other words, Russia is losing the war. That was a lie. He knew it was when he said it, but he repeated it in congressional testimony. That is a crime. But Lloyd Austin has not been arrested for committing that crime. Instead, the only man who has been taken into custody, or likely ever will be, is a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman who leaked the slides that showed that Lloyd Austin was lying. He revealed the crimes, therefore he's the criminal. That's how Washington works. Telling the truth is the only real sin. Now, our news media exist and have constitutional protection precisely in order to push back against this grotesque standard. Their only job is to tell the truth. 
And yet tonight, the news media are celebrating the capture of the kid who told Americans what's actually happening in Ukraine. They are treating him like Osama bin Laden, maybe a little worse, actually, because unlike al-Qaeda, apparently this kid is a racist. Here's CNN. The Washington Post, as you know, reviewed video of this suspect yelling racial and anti-Semitic slurs. Is this a dangerous person? This uh, uh, air guardsman who's now been taken into custody had talked about being a gun enthusiast, had been at gun ranges. He's obviously a member of the military. And he's the big guy in the scene. Somehow he has access to this kind of information, and that makes him even larger. A person who thinks they know better than everyone else, they're smarter than everyone else in their view. And that this is a 21-year-old man. He's described as a gun enthusiast. Um, feels like, in some of these descriptions, somebody who's maybe hungry for power. So this 21-year-old Air National Guardsman from Massachusetts is not a whistleblower, CNN explains, with the help of the many intelligence agency figures it is now hired as analysts. No, he's not a whistleblower. He's a criminal. Because he is, unlike the people who run our government, quote, hungry for power. And because this 21-year-old was so hungry for power, federal law enforcement had to swing into action with unfamiliar speed and efficiency and apprehend him. He was that threatening. Now, keep in mind, as of tonight, we still don't know where Jeffrey Epstein got hundreds of millions of dollars. We have no idea. Nor do we know what he did for a living. We don't know who left pipe bombs on Capitol Hill on January 6th, two of them. We don't know who leaked the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. We can't even say for certain who killed the president of the United States, because after 60 years, the Biden administration is still hiding thousands of pages of classified documents from the Kennedy assassination, just as they are hiding more than a billion other classified documents. But tonight, we can say for dead certain who embarrassed Toria Newland and Joe Biden and that kid is going to jail for a long, long time. That's the standard. The media are fine with that standard. Watch this remarkable exchange on Monday of this week between the White House press corps and Biden flack John Kirby. Without confirming the validity of the documents, this is information that has no business in the public domain. It has no business, if you don't mind me saying, uh, on the pages of, uh, of uh, front pages of, of newspapers or on television. It is not intended for public uh, consumption, and it should not be out there. So the fact that U.S. soldiers are fighting Russian soldiers in a war in Ukraine has no business in the public domain. The fact that the country we are backing and fighting alongside is losing, not winning, has no business in the public domain. You have no right to know what your government is doing in your name with your tax dollars and with the future of your children and grandchildren. You have no right to know. Shut up and stop asking relevant questions. Okay, said the media. And if you want to get really sick to your stomach, go pull a transcript from the Pentagon briefing today where news reporters asked Flax from the Pentagon, what are we going to do to keep information like this secret in the future? Now, one question about the substance of the information. We're fighting a war against Russia directly? Really? Don't they have the largest nuclear arsenal in the world? Now, Tucker says so much stuff in there that's worth highlighting. But the beginning part where he goes over the lies about the war, I feel like I live in bizarre parallel universe. I think you feel the same way, Rod. 
I've never thought Russia was lo- losing the war, right? Have you ever once, I, you know, and we've reported on the war week in and week out. I think some of the best reporting out there. So I feel I, I, I don't quite know what it's like to be a person who thought Russia was losing. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, I, I get exactly what you're saying, Lee. And, uh, you know, I've been a part of these conversations, you know, like in the sauna at the gym. And, you know, you have some people, they'll, I mean, they'll, they'll raise their energy like, no, no, I, I know for a fact that Russia's losing because of this, this and this. And just like, you just got to let them be, you know, if they're so entrenched in their belief, you know what I mean? That's that's right. There's nothing to say because they're going to have an answer for anything, but it won't make any sense, right? I mean, them trying to explain why Russia's losing makes no sense. And you'll see people who might be like friends or, you know, be on their side and I'll just lay out simple things and they'll just be like, hey, yeah. And, you know, what is, what is your response to that? And it, again, it's just more emotions than a rationale. And then, you, like I said, you just got to let it be after that. And. You know, also, I'm not saying, but, you know, you'd think people talking to a guy who's a producer on a show about the news, who talks to guests and books guests and helps, you know, talks on the show, might be kind of more of an expert than the guy who works at the auto parts store who's probably sitting next year. Does it make sense? But they never seem to think that way. No, no, no. That TikTok video they saw, that, that 59 seconds informed them more than I ever could, Lee. Then they went on to the next one. And by the way, there's a, Montana is trying to ban TikTok as a state. Don't Please don't buy into this BS. Banning TikTok benefits no one. If you don't like your kids watching TikTok videos, be a parent. Don't try to have the state be a parent. Be a parent. Am I too harsh, Rod? I agree, Lee. I agree totally. But I think it's more people are worried about adults who are uh, addicted and, and the government's stepping in to uh, take control over that. Well, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Let, let's do this. We've got to take a break because with us in the next segment is the new host of a fabulous new show here on Radio Spenick called The Final Countdown. Sing it, Rod. No, don't. Okay. While we're talking about that, we, we, correct, yesterday we said we, we couldn't have get that 80s metal song out of our heads. But uh, the host of the final countdown, co host with Minal Chan, up next is new host Ted Rawl. Right, Rod? That's correct, Lee. Okay. Let's take a break, and when we come back, the final half hour of the week with the great Ted Rawl on The Backstory. We are back for the last half hour of the week here on the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is the backstory. And by the way, we're on the radio in Washington, D.C., 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now, author, artist, 
Bon Vivant, and soon talk show host here at Maria Spudnik, the great Ted Roll. How you doing, Ted? And congratulations. Thanks, Lee. Uh, I think I think that's you just made some exclusive news there. I think you're the first person to mention this in any public forum. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm doing good. Well, actually, we had Manel Chan on the radio yesterday, and oh, okay. we broke it then. And Manel and I talked about how much we like you, Ted. So she wasn't trash talking you. Don't, don't worry. Uh, oh, good. And l- let me ask you something, Ted. As you're about to start the final countdown on Monday, right? Right. That's right. It starts 10, Monday. 10 a.m. to 12 noon Eastern. That's right. And uh, I think it's great. Now, I know you, I think, well enough to know you probably have a hidden agenda. So let me, <laughs> let me, you know, because as a guest, you're forced to deal with whatever people throw at you. In my case, you had to deal with all kinds of foolishness from croissants to Dead Kennedy's concerts. But now you have your own show, Ted, co hosting with Minnow. What kind of stuff do you want to cover? That's the hidden agenda, I mean. Do you have things that you want to focus on or do on the show? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, it's no secret that, uh, you know, I'm a lefty and I want to elevate. Uh, discussions about how America could do better uh, for to, by its people and by the world. And uh, so I have ideas of what that should look like. So I want to talk about those things. I'm also super interested in social commentary type stuff, like stuff that like is going to change people's lives. Like, for example, if the move to electric cars not just you know self-driving cars that are going to run into people, which that's going to happen, but also you know the, the the class question of like for example, you know electric cars are super expensive. Even if they scale, are you know are fewer people going to be able to afford to drive than than can drive now? And those kinds of questions, you know, that have they have vast geopolitical implications. Like you know what, what powers an electric car? A lithium battery? Where does lithium come from? A lot of it comes from Afghanistan. Some of it comes from Central Africa, <clears throat> you know. So, uh, and and who has those mining rights? Primarily China. Uh, so that leverages their power over this technology. And you know, what does that mean? So I'm interested in those kind of questions. Of course, Manila has her own stuff that she's interested in. But we have a lot of of uh, crossover. We we both are interested in a lot of the same things. And um, so yeah, you know, basically and obviously analyzing the issues of the day and the week. Right, yeah, yeah. The, you know, granted, you have to deal with that. Now, we were talking before, and we played a long clip from Tucker Carlson, and I was saying that because I host his show, and we've been doing, and because of the research I'd done before this show about Ukraine, I have never, for one second, been fooled by the media's BS about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Okay, I've never thought Russia was losing, or I didn't, I always knew there were Ukrainian Nazis, for instance, because I never, you know, a lot of people weren't hearing about Russia and Ukraine until February of last year. Now, Ted, as a guest, I know you've studied issues. Have you ever bought into any BS about this war? 
I doubt it. But Ted, no. Uh, and you know what's interesting is, I mean, there are definitely people who accuse me, and they're like saying, "Well, you know, you do cartoons because I I draw cartoons for Sputnik." So you're just saying you're parroting, you know, Russia's official line. But the truth is, long before I ever heard of anything called Sputnik, uh, you know, I had a dim view, and I wrote about uh, the new Ukrainian regime and I, and the expansion of NATO and how it was threatening Russia, and how this was going to lead to conflict, and how it was a problem. So when this all happened, it actually only happened, you know, later, much later than I expected. I thought there would be, uh, the conflict would arise sooner. Uh, I think the Russians were actually incredibly patient. But I I was surprised about nothing, and I was not surprised that there was a lot of lying in the media. Probably the only thing that really kind of caught me by surprise was just how quickly Americans who had never could not find Ukraine on a map suddenly had Ukrainian flags, you know, on their as their avatars or hanging from their living room windows. And I was like, wait, that's really weird. Because um, we haven't really had that kind of nationalism behind a proxy war in my lifetime. We've had nationalism in the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq and the war on terror generally. Uh, And the Gulf War, I remember seeing the ticker tape parade in New York for the returning Gulf War vets. But I've never seen, uh, you know, America fights proxy wars a lot, and I've never seen any great interest on the part of the American people. You know, you you didn't see South Vietnamese flags uh, in America uh, in in the late 60s, early 70s. So um, this that part's weird, but the lies and and also, it never really made any sense that Ukraine could defeat Russia, knowing what I know about the military capabilities of both countries. Well, that I made a point yesterday to someone. Uh, you're right. You know, just, you know, if, if you thought the U.S. versus, you know, Honduras advantage U- U.S., right? Much bigger country. And it's not quite the <laughs> yes. same. But right I'm not a military guy, but duh. Right. I think U.S. Mexico might be a good analogy. You know, I mean, it's like Mexico, like Ukraine. Yeah. They have a military. It's respectable. But sorry, it's there's no comparison. That's that's right. Contemporarily, there's that's not a word really, but okay. Uh, you know, today there's no comparison. It's a big country, a major major country, one of the biggest in the world. And not that. Right. And, yeah. yeah and, so. and, you know, also you can just sort of see, I mean, you know, the stuff that came out of the uh, the gamer, you know, document leaks is sort of also a big duh. Because it's like, well, you know, people last year were asking me, you know, what do you think will happen? I said, ah, you know, I think things will settle out into sort of a grinding war of attrition uh, next year. Um, there's unless there's some kind of game changer on either side in the form of a new weapon or Russia deploying more troops. They always have more troops they could deploy. Um, you know, they're they're sort of holding some of their, uh, you know, one of their hands behind their back at any given time. Uh, or, I don't know, if, you, if, if Ukraine got U.S. boots on the ground, something. But failing that, you know, as the current situation goes on, you can just look at a map. There's not a lot of troop movements. There's not a, The lines aren't moving much. And that's pretty, pretty much the Pentagon assessment. While they've been lying to us 
and saying, you know, Ukraine's winning, they're going to take back Crimea and drive the Russians out of Donbass entirely. I was like, you guys are crazy. That's that's just not, that that is, I had a lawyer who loved to say this in court, and I love this expression, and he'd say, not only is that not true, that could not be true. <laughs> and it wasn't true. Well, because for one reason, I always get back to this. The people who live there want to be part of Russia. The people in Crimea True. want to be a part of Russia. And all I did was research that premise. And I found people saying, we we weren't, we didn't like Russia before. But now that they've taken over Crimea, actually, we've been happy with the way it's been. And other people said, we love Russia. And so we're very happy to be back. But I saw people on both sides of the issue were now living in Crimea who were happy Russia was there. And I yeah, saw well, it, these videos. It's, it's a fluke of history that Crimea was ever under Ukrainian control, as you know, Lee. I mean, it's it wasn't really supposed to be. That was Khrushchev's little gift uh, to try to keep right. the Soviet Union together. Uh, it was like the birthday gift to Ukraine. But, you know, when you're all part of the USSR, it's kind of like doesn't matter that much. But it's, you know, the, the even the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is a widely respected Western organization, said that the Crimean plebiscite vote was fairly constructed without, was, uh, without uh, you know, any significant irregularities. So that's right. The vote, was, the vote was fair and it was lopsided and it was overwhelming. It was like. If memory serves, it was over 90%. That's right. And I also note the lack of big protests in Crimea since 2014, saying, oh, please. And by the way, look at the history of Ukraine after 2014. It became the poorest country in Europe, and people were freezing to death. Why would you want to live in, in Kiev, right? I mean, that was not happening in Crimea. So after the made down after that coup things did not go well for the people of, of kiev and poroshenko had a six percent approval rating six percent that's unbelievable that that is unbelievable i mean you're lucky you know to, to avoid assassination when you have a six percent approval rating and uh you know it, zelensky was extremely unpopular um before right all these troubles began that he provoked. And the thing is that, uh, you know, you're starting to see, obviously, a lot of Ukrainians did not like him before, Mo maybe most Ukrainians, but now they feel like they have to shut up because they're afraid of what will happen. They think they'll be, you know, uh, there's the atmosphere is oppressive. They, they can't talk. So a few of them are starting to, to speak up, but this is, it's madness. I mean, Zelensky is a charlatan. He has led his country to disaster. And um, it's, you know, I mean, I, I think history will make that pretty clear sooner rather than later. But, um, you know, right now, the, the documents that leaked due to this 21-year-old National Guardsman don't seem to be changing a lot of hearts and minds in the U.S., but the support just keeps eroding, and I think it will continue to. Yeah, big, and, and one thing people see is that Zelensky may be an awful leader, but he's a good award show host. It's only yeah, a matter and, of time. 
He's well, Oscar. He's, he, Oscar. He's a, he yeah. is like the he is like the reality TV tel, uh, president for Eastern Europe. Um, you know, it's a, he's perfect. I mean, he was an actor, literally an act. The, the name of his party is the name of his TV show. Um, that is insane. I mean, it's like you can't make this stuff up. It makes Donald Trump not look as wild and crazy as he is. You mean the candidate from the Apprentice Party? <laughs> yeah, precisely. Or the WWE so, party. So since we're talking presidential politics, what do you think of RFK Jr. entering the race this Wednesday? He's announcing in Boston on Wednesday. And I personally am excited about it because I can't think of any more disruptive candidate, truly disruptive, than RFK Jr. What say you, Ted Rawl? Uh, I'm very uh, look. Uh, the Democrats clearly need some alternatives to Joe Biden, uh, and I was doing a, a dive into this. Um, Mary, Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. are the two declared rivals to Joe Biden, who is not himself, by the way, declared. And each of them are currently polling about 10 percent, and that might among Democratic voters. And that might not sound like a lot, but consider this: I interviewed Bernie Sanders in June of 2015, so effectively two months later in the cycle than now, at that time, he was polling between one and two percent among Democrats. And he, um, he, 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 he went, he rose wildly. We know what happened. He came close to defeating Hillary Clinton. I think it's a fair uh, argument to say that if the DNC had kept their, their fingers off the scales, that Bernie Sanders would have been the nominee. Um, and so whatever you say, even if you don't buy that, he got damn close. And um, so starting out at, effectively, Joe Biden starting out with 20% opposition at this stage, man, I see weakness. And I see opportunity for someone like Williamson or RFK Jr. I do. And I think he's a, I think RFK Jr. is an impressive guy. They're trying to smear him as an anti-vaxxer when really it's more like he's an anti um, He's more of like an anti-big pharma guy um, and an anti-Fauci dude. Good way to it. And I think and that's... I think, I think that anti... Sorry, Ted. I think that anti-big pharma thing has wide support on both the left and the right right now. You see that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look, if you trust big pharma, you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Right. And so those crucial independent voters, I think, are, are probably anti-Big Pharma. Yeah, no, I think Americans are anti-Big Pharma. Anybody who stops 10 seconds to think about it, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, look, uh, uh, I'm not anti-vax. I'm more vaccinated probably than anyone else in America, but I don't, uh, but I don't, I also don't think this is going to be an issue because for, for, for RFK, because American elections are always about the future. The COVID pandemic is by definition, according to Joe Biden himself, in the past. It's done. The emergency is finished. It is now, as my doctor recently said, it's basically a cold. Um, so, in yes, people die from colds. People die from the flu. People die from pneumonia. But they're not going to, but they're not going to, uh, it's not going to, it's just a cold, and uh, we're moving on. We're going back to our normal lives. I don't think voters are going to 
be particularly impressed with the argument he's an anti-vaxxer because this election isn't 2020, 2020, it's 2024. So it's not going to matter. Um, I think, you know, can he take the nomination away from, from Biden? That's, you know, of course, a long shot, but he's political royalty. He's extremely charismatic. He's very smart and he really cares about the American people. And I think anybody here hears, hears him talk knows that to be true. And also, I find historical resonances. For instance, where's the DNC going to be this year? I mean, 2024 in Chicago. And right. it seems to me, I remember the last time the DNC was in Chicago. It was a lot of hubbub. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 wasn't, it, it was not awesome. <laughs> um, well, it was and, awesome, but just not in a good way. Um, but the guy who was supposed to be there... Who was supposed to be the nominee? Who was supposed it's, to be? Yeah. Um, well, that's a good question. It depends on how you look if at you'd it. Well, originally, it was supposed to be LBJ. On to Chicago. LBJ and stepped down. Right. LBJ stepped down, and, so, and then then it was supposed to be then then uh, the party anointed Humphrey right because they didn't want RFK entered well, I, late. I, um, I RFK think RFK was, was was looking. Yeah, I you know, and then there was the clean church, gene. Pardon? Right. I think RFK sh should have been there at Chicago, but he was assassinated in June of '68. So I find That's right, it right after the California primary. And so I find it very historically significant that in the same year that RFK is running, it's in Chicago, because I think this will be a DNC with a lot of protests. Yeah, well, I think I think that it's true that the I mean, the, uh, the there will be protests, but you know they're going to put them, shunt them awfully into free speech zones, four miles away from the convention site, and of course, today's protesters, frankly, don't have much in common. I have more in common with the yippies. I think uh, you know the running street battles of the late nineteen of nineteen sixty eight in Chicago, that was an effective protest. I mean, it raised all sorts of consciousness about police brutality, the nature of the system, the violence of the system. Uh, you know, today's protesters will be shunted behind in, into cages and they will peacefully protest. I don't think you're going to see any violence. So I, I predict you will. And here's why. Here's an interesting fact you probably didn't know. I didn't know it until I saw news recently. Do you know how many of the protesters in 1968 Chicago? Were FBI? Oh, right. One in six. One in six, Ted. One in six. Now, a think lot about of, that. Agent provocateur. Right. Well, well said with the French in you. But, you, you know, and we saw January 6th, a lot of FBI, right? We don't even know how many. So I'd no, say. Nobody has any idea. So I'd say. You know, if I were a betting man, I would say they're already planning it at FBI HQ at the Hoover Building. What that you're going to do in Chicago? Does that make sense, Ted? It it totally makes sense, Lee. So yeah, 100%. I think they're going to provoke both protests. Well, that could well be. I mean, you know, the thing about political violence I've noticed historically is whenever it's predicted, it does not occur. Whenever it's not predicted, it might occur. So, well, so these things are let's make impossible a, to know. Let's make, 
And let's make a prediction, because that brings us into the French thing and the protest thing, brings us in to what is being hailed in the media as a victory for Macron. And it was, in a sense, but I think it's a ferric victory. Different culture, sorry for cross-reference. I'm, I'm saying, I do not think this will help Macron ultimately. He won in court, and his pension age is going to be apparently 64 now. But I think that people still hate it. And I think the protests will continue. What do you say, Ted? 100% agreed, Lee. Uh, the protests will continue. The, the French knew that the fix was in, but that doesn't stop them because they know from their history that they can change protests, they can change policy out in the streets. And whatever happens at the Elysee Palace does not matter. Um, what matters is what happens in the streets. People are furious. Um, they're going to keep protesting. This isn't going away. Macron's president is effectively dead. And if I were Macron, I would consider resigning. You know, I mean, de Gaulle did it twice. He could do it. Um, on the other hand, he can stay in. And I guess he can tell himself at night that, you know, hey, this was really important. I needed to do it for France. I know everyone's going to hate me, but I did. I, I provided courageous leadership when no one else would. Uh, you know, uh, this is what, it's not just my leo, neoliberal masters telling me what to do. We have to reform this pension system. Otherwise, it was going to go bankrupt. But basically, he's got four years of a presidency coming up with no political support whatsoever. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not going to get anything done. It's over. And it's, as I understand it, not a complete victory even in court, because some aspects of it were rejected. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, he only got part of it, but he got the main thing. That's what he wanted. And um, it's, uh, you know, look, this is, this is still a story in motion. Um, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm uh, Macron, I'm not like going home and thinking, well, that's that. And I'm sure he's not. He knows. Now, some of the people protesting or their organization, I forget which one, but said that they'd stop the protest if they lost at this court, right? Is so, but other yeah, people but that, are saying there was no one important. I mean, the CGT will continue. The, they're the main giant militant labor union in France, and uh, there's you know all the and and the right is kind of united in a war in a uh, alliance of convenience with the far left. So you have like Marine Le Pen and and um, Jean, Jean Mélenchon uh, sort of fighting the same thing. This reminds me a little bit of when uh, Shah Massoud in Afghanistan in the 1980s famously united the anti-Soviet opposition, the Mujahideen, and he they were all disparate factions, all hating each other, and he toasted them with tea, and he said, first we kill the Soviets, next week then we kill each other. And I think that's what this this is about. The French know how to do that. They were, every political opponent of Macron is now united because they know if they get rid of Macron, it'll create a power vacuum that they can then try to fill. And as long as he's there, there's no motion, nothing happens for them. And do you think the French protests, what are the issues actually that people are protesting about? Is it the age? Is it really strictly the age going up to two years? It doesn't seem to be 
that that alone is enough. But I don't know. No, it's well, you know what it is, Lee. It's like it's like if in the United States, the president decided to change the flag to something else. And like, let's let's say in honor of the environment, we're replacing the red stripes with green stripes. It's, good, good. That's good. Analogy, it's an yeah. aff- it's an affront to a basic American idea. Uh, it's an affront to a, a basic American culture, something that defines Americans. And and Ted, uh, Paul, that, we have a heart out right now. We got to go. But great conversation and congratulations on the final countdown starting Monday, 10 a.m. to noon here on Radio Spectre. Thanks, Ted, and thanks thank to you. Karen Hall. Great first hour guest. And thanks to Rod and Zach. Great week. We'll be back next week with more great backstory.